John 7, 40 to 52. Division instead of faith. Division instead of faith. Verse 40. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers, therefore, came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees therefore answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus said to them, He who came to him before, being one of them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know the truth. We pray, Lord, that we will not remain in any unbelief, any stubbornness, that we will not have any caves or crevices in our dark hearts that are reluctant to submit to you, to understand your word, and to obey Jesus Christ in all things. We confess that he is our only master and Lord, but may our life live up to that confession. And teach us from this passage not to ever have the responses that we have just read, the responses of the multitudes. Teach us, Father, to always hear your word, believe it, and then seek diligently to follow it however you mean it and whatever you expect of us. Give us, Lord, those kinds of eyes, ears, and hearts. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. This passage is an amazing passage. We will see that there are at least seven examples of unbelief. Seven examples of unbelief in verses 40 to 52 here. Essentially, we have division instead of faith. We have dissonance instead of faith. We have conflicts instead of faith. We have disagreements instead of faith in the words of Christ. And this should be stunning to all of us. Why? Because in 37 to 39, last time, Christ told us, Christ taught us, that if we believed in him, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit would be in us, and the Holy Spirit would gift us, the Holy Spirit would guide us, Grant us grace and insight, wisdom, understanding, the true knowledge of God, and lead us on the highway to holiness to meet Christ face to face. 
after preaching this and offering this to the multitude, the multitude does not see the good preaching, the good message. They don't see the goodness of the gospel just proclaimed to them. Their inabilities, because of their blindness, because of their deafness, and because of their stony hearts, their inability because of those facets of their spiritual nature, their inability causes them to have disagreements and divisions instead of believing. But they must believe. Jesus, or John, illustrates for us what Jesus has said on other occasions, such as the famous parable of the sower, seed, and soils. Remember that Jesus described the preaching of the word receiving four basic responses. Three out of the four responses are responses of unbelief. However, there were elements of truth that the first three responses manifested. They manifested some understanding, some ability to go in the right direction, but they never clinched the deal. They never embraced true faith. Only the fourth soil did. For further study, those passages are Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8, the parable of the sower, seed, and soil. What we find here is the Apostle John presenting to us a similar example. But these are real-life examples in our passage. He's going to show us with all of these seven examples that at this time, none of them were led to faith. But all of them had elements of the truth that they understood and believed, but they did not understand enough to save their souls, at least not at this point. In one case, we will see later he is saved, but not at this point. This is the tragedy of preaching the true gospel. And this is the reality also of preaching the true gospel. Preaching the true gospel will inevitably bring division among the hearers. They will not in unison submit to the truth, no matter how pleasantly, no matter how wonderfully, no matter how eloquently it is explained, it will inevitably bring division instead of faith in the vast majority of those who hear. If we see this happening in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who was the best of all teachers, the most uh, accurate and holy of all apostles, the true messenger sent from heaven, if it could happen to him who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, if it could happen to him who made our mouths and who had the ability to explain the truth of God that no one else ever had, even as it says in verse 46, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. One of the unbelievers is forced to admit that, or the officers are forced to admit that truth. If it could happen to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and it happened to him all the time, it will happen to us. And John presents this here to illustrate for us the way of the Christian life, the way of the preaching of the gospel. Let's see these various examples. The first one is in verse 40. 
sum of the multitude. Keep in mind that the multitude is this large group, the crowd, and among them there are different responses. So there's one body, at least in this explanation, one body, but different elements or different people in that body. One of them, verse 40, some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. When they heard these words, the words that Jesus just spoke, right? In 37 to 39, wonderful words, good words, words of the Holy Spirit, words of glorification, words of eternal life, living waters. He, they heard good words. They were moved by those good words to admit this fundamental truth. This certainly is the prophet. Are they correct? Yes. Are they speaking the truth? Yes. It's not the first time, though, that they've admitted that. In chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 14, if these are the same people, chapter 6, verse 14, when therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth the prophet who is to come into the world. The prophet who is to come into the world. There was to be a prophet coming into the world, and here we find in John seven forty this one group among the multitude, they say, this is certainly that prophet. Well, who is that prophet that they would have known? From Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, there we find the prophet, like Moses, that would be raised up by God to preach among the people. Moses predicted it many, many years before, the prophet like himself, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 20. We find that this is explained and fulfilled by Peter the Apostle in Acts chapter 3, 22 to 26. He said, Moses preached that this prophet would come. Jesus is that prophet. Well, they're true, saying the truth. But in what way are they wrong? It doesn't lead to salvation. It does not lead to salvation. They only admit what they know to be true. And then it doesn't go any further than that. They stop there. Verse 41. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Others had it even better. In this case, you see, in the, the contrast of verses 40 to 41, in verse 40, they say he's the prophet, but in their mind, the thing they get wrong is the prophet is also the Christ. In 41, those who get it more correct, they say he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one predicted so many times in the Old Testament. This is the one. They have it more correct it's right to say he's a prophet. Jesus was a prophet, no doubt. The greatest of all the prophets. But he's more than a prophet. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. These others in the multitude, verse 41, the second group, they say this is the Christ. But does it lead to salvation? Does it lead to followership? Does it lead to discipleship? Does it lead to loving the word? It doesn't lead to that. It's just in a passage full of dissonance and di disagreements, dis divisions. It's in this context 
that the Apostle John presents it. This is why we conclude that the second example of verse 41, they have more of the facts correct about Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ, but it still does not lead to salvation. You will find when you preach the gospel, people in the first category of verse 40 and even people in the second category of verse 41. But they will still say to you, for example, in verse 40, current uh, or Muslims throughout history and even currently if you preach to a Muslim, he'll say, we believe Jesus was a prophet of God. We believe that. But that's all. It doesn't go beyond that for their salvation to believe that he died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead. Muslims will not believe that. Others of them, others of, uh, among people, they will admit that Jesus certainly was the Christ. He fulfilled the Old Testament, but I can't worship a God like that. I don't want to believe he died for my sins. They will admit that the things the Bible teaches are true, and even true about Christ, but they won't believe in him. They can't go that far. But we have a third group in verse 41. We get more skeptical as we proceed. Verse 41, skepticism, the first element of skepticism arises. In 41, still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Yes. Notice there. In 41, the Christ is not going to come from Galilee. He is supposed to come from Bethlehem, from the family of David. We saw from Psalm 132, yes, indeed, he comes from the family of David. We see also from Micah 5, verse 2, indeed, he is to be born in Bethlehem. Christ is to be born in Bethlehem and be from the family of David. That's true. However, what is it that they misunderstand? They misunderstand the relationship between Bethlehem of Judah, the tribe of Judah, and its relationship to the region, the northern region in the land of Israel called Galilee, and the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, which had their inheritances in that northern region. They misunderstood because they did not correctly interpret Isaiah the prophet with Micah the prophet and others to understand what Isaiah was saying. We read from Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is a messianic chapter, especially the first half of the chapter is certainly messianic. Unto us a, ch a, a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace, right? This is Christ who will be born. Earlier in the chapter, he says, a light is going to shine in Galilee. Where darkness is, light is going to be there. What did Isaiah mean? He meant that though Christ would be born in Bethlehem of Judah, of a southern tribe near Jerusalem, he was going to have his ministry in Galilee to preach and teach there. 
which he did. He resided in the city of Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and most of his ministry was conducted there. That's the sense in which he was a bright light in a dark place. That's what Isaiah meant in Isaiah 9. They did not understand the relationship of one scripture to another. And because they did not correctly understand the relationship of one scripture, such as Micah 5.2, and compare it to Isaiah 9, 1-7, because they did not understand the relationship of these two scriptures, it caused unbelief. It caused skepticism. When we understand the harmony of Scripture, the agreement of Scripture, the place of one Scripture with another Scripture, it increases our faith, it increases our assurance and confidence. But when we allow our inability to understand and our unbelief to make one Scripture contradict another Scripture or leave one Scripture dangling while we hold on to another Scripture, then we don't correctly understand what God meant. This is what they did here when they said, there's no way he's going to come from Galilee. There's no way he has any association from Galilee. He has to be born in Bethlehem. Of course, born in Bethlehem, minister in Galilee. And as we saw in previous studies, he was brought up or raised in Nazareth, the town of Nazareth. All of these are true. And even further that he would be crucified in Jerusalem. All of these are true of him, understood in their proper context. But because they did not understand, and from these first three groups, we find a summary statement in verse 43, John 7, 43. So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. There arose a division in the multitude because of him. There were factions. There were disagreements. And people were arguing back and forth and disputing back and forth about these matters without faith, which often happens. They will dispute with each other because they don't have this true faith to believe in him and to approach the matter properly. They don't approach it properly because they don't have faith. Because they don't have faith, it brings about division. Notice also in verse 43, he says, because of him. John the Apostle says, because of him. When he says this, does he mean it's Jesus' fault or not? It says... There arose a division in the multitude because of him, because of Christ, because of whatever Christ taught. Does John the Apostle accuse Jesus of causing unnecessary division? Is he blaming Christ or is he simply ascribing the origin of their division, but really blaming the multitude? He's doing the latter. He's blaming the multitude. The multitude is divided on Christ. The multitude is unwilling to see Jesus Christ in his true person, in his true nature, in his true ministry. 
They're unwilling to look at Him correctly. It has to do with Christ. So in a sense, Christ is a divider, but He's a good divider. Christ is not at fault. He is not blameworthy here. The multitude is blameworthy because they don't perceive Him correctly. They don't comprehend Him correctly. This teaches us what Jesus Himself said in Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, 49 to 53. Luke 12, 49 to 53. What was the purpose of Christ coming into the world? That could be answered differently because the different answers would all be true. But here is one answer that is underlooked. Luke 12, 49 to 53. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Christ says he has fire to cast. He has fire to kindle. He is to undergo a baptism. He is distressed until it happens. And then, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? If you did, you misunderstood. I did not come to grant peace on earth. I tell you no, but rather division. Division. That's our term from John 7. He came to produce division, and even division in one's household, verses 52 to 53. He came to do so, not because he is trying to create problems and trouble, but because of who he is being truth. Those who embrace falsehood will be divided because they refuse to believe the truth. The central concern is Christ, but the central problem is in the perverse human heart. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 19. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 19. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. They are not to be commended because of their strife, factions, and divisions. They are not commended for that. And then he says, he has heard that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. 
He has heard that that happens, but he says that it's something that is essential. It must happen that way. There must also be factions among you. Why must there be factions, schisms, disagreements among the church or churches of God? In order that those who are approved may have become evident among you or may become evident among you. What does the apostle mean? He means that when divisions arise, it draws people's minds to the issues of the divisions, and then it helps the true church, the true believers, examine what's happening and grasp and side with those who are with the truth, and also to reject those who are not for the truth. This is what the apostle means. This is also what John is teaching us. John is teaching us that we should still embrace Christ, still follow Christ, although the multitudes do not follow him and they make excuses to avoid following him. Follow Christ and not them. We spoke of the multitude. Now let's speak of who was included in that multitude and who else comments on the responses of the multitude. Verses 45 to 52. Therefore, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers. There were certain officers. This is the... I'm sorry. Let's uh, go back one verse. We missed verse 44. Verse 44. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 44. We have our fourth group in 44. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. On him. We know they wanted to seize him earlier, verse 30. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Others of them showed their unbelief in their attempt to arrest him. If someone arrests Christ, if someone wants to grab him and get rid of him, have nothing to do with him, disassociate with him, that is evidence of unbelief. If they don't want to be around him, and in fact they want to get rid of him, his presence among them, then that's evidence of unbelief. But in this case, with this fourth group, they were prohibited from doing so. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. At the right time, the father... And the Son will ordain for Jesus to be arrested. In the book of John, it happens in chapter 18. Meantime, who is controlling everything? The Father and the Son. John 10, 17 and 18. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. 
I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. The father and the son, they have no division. They have unison. They have unity. The father and the son have ordained that at the right time, Christ will lay down his life and also take it up. He will not have anybody take it away from him. He lays it down on his own initiative and he takes it up on his own initiative. The father and the son have appointed this to occur. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. John 2, 18 to 22. Christ said he will raise up his own body. That's why it didn't happen. They might seek to destroy him, to stop him, but he is unstoppable. Now we come to verse 45, the officers. The officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers may have been among the preceding ones in verse 44, or they may be the leaders of them. Whatever the case, in verse 45, let's name a fifth group, the officers. These officers are mentioned again in verse 46. Why is it that the officers did not bring Christ to the chief priests and Pharisees? Because they were mesmerized. They were stunned. They were speechless. Verse 46. The officers said, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. They were so speechless or amused or so curious about this Jesus Christ that it stopped them from actually saying the word to get their hoodlums uh, to go and arrest him, to get the mob to go and arrest him, to seize him. They were prevented because they saw the way he spoke, they saw what he said, how authoritatively he spoke, how eloquently he spoke, and they couldn't do anything. They had to back off based on the way he spoke. He spoke better than Moses. He had more authority than Moses, even though Moses had thunderous authority when he descended from Mount Sinai. He could not. He was more eloquent than Isaiah the prophet. It's hard to read Isaiah and not come away being amazed at his amazing eloquence. He was even better than Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet, he had his heart and soul fully engrossed in what he preached. He could not separate himself from his message because he had such conviction and such passion for what he was preaching. This is why he's dubbed as the weeping prophet, because he wept with great concern over the people because of what he had to preach the burden he had for the people. Well, in this case, Christ, he surpasses all of them. He completely surpasses all of these greats of the Old Testament, even John the Baptist. Because Jesus said of John the Baptist, there is no one born greater, born among women greater than John the Baptist. No one's greater than John. 
Even the preceding prophets, no one was greater than John the Baptist. But here, the officers are halted from their malicious mission of arresting him for that reason. But did it cause the officers to believe? No. It caused them to be amazed. It caused them to be amused. It caused them to reflect on what he said and to compare him to others. But it did not cause them to believe. Back to verse 45 for our sixth group. Our sixth group in verse 45. The officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees. If you wish, you may divide these two into subgroups, but they, because they were a part of the Sanhedrin, I just consider them one body, one group, the chief priests and Pharisees. The chief priests would have been the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the laymen. They were the educated, skilled laymen, a part of this council of teachers for the people. And the chief priests, they would have done the things that were necessary in the temple with the rituals and the sacrifices. They would have also been teachers. They are known elsewhere as the Sadducees. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees together in one group. What did they want? What was their commission to the officers? Why did you not bring him? We gave you a task to go and arrest him, to go and seize him. Why did you not do it? They wanted Jesus away from the multitudes. They wanted Jesus to keep his mouth shut. They wanted to flog him or stone him to death or hand him over to the Romans, something, whatever it takes to get rid of him. Why? Jealousy. Jealousy. Essentially, the pride of jealousy. If Jesus has the multitude following him, waiting for his every word, expecting miracles, and, expect, or, and receiving a lots of honor and praise from the multitude, isn't that what those in authority typically want? Though, especially if it is institutionalized and organized, that's what those in authority want. They want the praise of all the people. They want the flattery of each other, their own colleagues, but they also want the praise of the common people. They want everybody to like them. They want everybody to consult them. They don't recommend reading and studying on their own. They want you to consult them. Otherwise, you don't know anything. They want you to read their books. Otherwise, you don't know anything. They want you to flatter them. Otherwise, you are divisive. That's what they will say. And that's what's going on here too. They didn't want everyone following Christ and Christ talking about true religion, true spiritual life, true godliness. They didn't want him doing that because Christ was constantly exposing hypocrisy. All the time exposing hypocrisy. Not now and then, but all the time. Wherever it was. Whether it was in his own group of the 12 apostles or whether it was on the outside, it didn't matter where it was. Whether it was with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, or whether it was in the Romans with Herod and Pilate. Wherever it was, he exposed it. Christ did. 
and they did not want it. They wanted to silence Christ. Here we find the chief priests and the Pharisees, they refused to believe because of their pride and their jealousy. Verse 47. The Pharisees, therefore, answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? What is their fear? It's showing their fear is being manifested, this sixth group. The Pharisees among them answered the officers and accused them or suggest that they have been deceived, that they have been led astray. They could not even tolerate an ounce of truth in that never did a man speak the way this man speaks. And that ounce of truth prevented the officers from seizing Christ. And because they were prevented from seizing Christ, because they acknowledged an ounce of truth, the Pharisees are very worried. They're very concerned about deception. They're very concerned about people being led astray and believing, even among themselves. They could not have it to be the case. If they have a Sanhedrin, a council of leaders in the nation to teach all the nation the truths of the Scriptures, the religious truths of the Scriptures, as well as the traditions of men. If they have that authority, they could not afford for one or two or ten or twenty of them to break up this council and say, council members, we believe in Jesus Christ. Ten of them, if they were to say, we believe in Jesus Christ, you all are false teachers, you all are heretics, we have to break this up, this is a big sham and you know it, we need to divide it up, break it up, and be real people, be real Christians. They could not tolerate that. They didn't want that. They didn't want anybody to believe in Christ. And the moment someone does, they would accuse that one of being deceived, being led astray. What's happening here? Their pride has so blinded them that they can't see that they are deceived and they are so blind they're about to fall into the pit of hell when actually those who have been enlightened, even by an ounce, they are on a better path, hopefully to full salvation, but they are on a better path than these Pharisees who think that the others are led astray. Christ says in John 9, this very thing. John 9, after he healed the man born blind. After he healed him, he later met up with him and the man believes in Christ and worships him. Then Jesus explains why the Pharisees did not. The man did, but the Pharisees did not. The man did, but the man's parents did not. Why? Verse 39, 9 39, and Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see 
may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. The key is in verse 41. Since you say, since you claim, since you allege, we see, we see, we know, we know. They are deceived, but we're not deceived. We know what we're doing, but they don't know what they're doing. Since you claim that, you're really the ones who remain in sin. You are the blind ones I'm talking about, the spiritually blind ones, I mean, by my parable here of verse 39. Same in chapter 7. In chapter 7, the real ones deceived are the Pharisees and the council, the rest of the council, the chief priests and the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees and the chief priests, their arrogance is further illustrated from verses 49 to 52. It's further illustrated. How? By comparing themselves to the multitude, to the common people. Verse 49. But this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. The multitude which does not know the law is accursed. Is there no irony here? Who was supposed to teach the multitude the law? They were. They were supposed to teach them. So if they don't know it, it's their fault that the multitude doesn't know the law, if it's true. But then also, if they know the law, in what sense would the Sadducees and the Pharisees taught the law to the multitude? Would they have taught the law as the object of faith being Jesus Christ? No. So their teaching of the law would have been merely intellectual. It would have been merely ritual. It would have been merely knowledge or false knowledge. It would have been that kind of teaching of the law that did not produce salvation in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and did not produce salvation in the multitude. It only produced some factual knowledge. It produced some pride of that factual knowledge. It produced a devotion to rituals instead of the meaning of the rituals, which is pointing to faith in Jesus Christ. So Christ would have been devoid, even devoid of their knowledge, even if they had knowledge of the law. At least for the vast majority of them, Christ would have been devoid of it. Didn't he say that? Didn't Jesus himself say that? John 5, 39. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that testify of me and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. He says, yes, you search, you study, you know the scriptures to some extent, but you don't see me there. You don't see that it's preaching me and you are unwilling to come to me to believe in me. 
that you might have life. That's the same. That's the same. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they have the audacity to put a curse on the multitude when they are culpable since they are the teachers of the multitude. If they had complete ignorance, it would have been the Sanhedrin's fault. But even if they did not have complete ignorance, their knowledge would have been deficient knowledge because the Pharisees and the Sadducees would not have taught the multitude to believe in Christ. So the curse they pronounced on the crowd is the curse that they themselves placed on their own head. Finally, we've come to number seven, verse 50. Number seven, Nicodemus. The seventh example of having a bit of knowledge, true knowledge, but no salvation. Nicodemus. Eventually, later in the book of John, there's evidence from chapter 19, verse 39, that he does believe. But likely not at this point. He does do better here in verse 50 because it's daytime, most likely. The first time he appeared to Christ in John chapter 3, verse 1, he came at nighttime, secretly. But now he has more courage to openly confront his colleagues because Nicodemus was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was among the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Nicodemus was. He was one of them. Nicodemus... Now, he's got a bit of courage, but not enough. He says to them, He who came to him before, being one of them, being one of them, he is among them, in terms of his position as a teacher of the people. 51. Our law does not judge a man unless it hears first from him and knows what he is doing. Does it? It's correct. Whether one is presumed to be innocent or a criminal, whether is one, one is presumed to be innocent or a criminal, the law does not judge until the evidence is brought forth. Nicodemus, in a way, he is in the right path in terms of seeking true justice, but by that statement, he is not necessarily saying Jesus is right and you are wrong. He's not necessarily saying that. He's just saying we need to be objective judges of the situation, which is true. But it's not true enough as applied to Christ. Examples of this. Deuteronomy 17, speaking of the law that Moses gave to the people. Deuteronomy 17 6, 17, 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Well, what's the purpose of the two or three witnesses? To present the evidence. But if there's only one witness, that one witness does not suffice as evidence to put someone to death. 
One more from John, or excuse me, from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19, 15. Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21, where we have a, a fuller explanation of true justice in relation to witnesses. 19, 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days, and the judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you, and the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Then you shall not show pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Therefore, Nicodemus is right. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing. He is correct. That's the right way. After hearing the right way, which his colleagues could not deny, do they say, Sir Nicodemus, you make a good point? No. They don't budge in their unbelief. Instead, they lob an accusation against him. They don't budge. They don't acknowledge the truthfulness of what he said, though it did not imply we need to believe in Jesus. Verse 52. They answered and said to him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. First, they insult him, and second, they commission him because of their disdain, their hatred for Galilee, the province or region of Galilee. First, they insult him. You are not also from Galilee, are you? You see, Nicodemus, we know where you're going. We know where you're going with this. We know that if we were judicious with this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus from Galilee, if we were judicious with him, if we were honest and forthright with him, as you say, according to the law, then we would be trapped. And we might have to concede that we are wrong. And we're unwilling to do that. Now, this, of course is the usual way people think. And this is likely what's happening in their mind. But what do they do? Instead of saying that honest truth to Nicodemus, they instead insult him. They don't deal with the matter. They just lob an accusation against him and say, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Remember, they despise Galilee. Why? Because Jerusalem is the center of authority. The temple is there. The priesthood is centered there. The scribes and the Pharisees, they have their schools there. They have everything there, right? Jerusalem was David's city. It has a long history. It's a good place. It's their capital. 
And Judah or Judea is the province surrounding Jerusalem. But outside of that, especially at this point in Jewish history, the rest of Canaan or the rest of the land of Israel became inhabited by foreigners, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily by foreigners. And they despised those foreigners and they despised those regions where the foreigners lived. So even though there were a few Jewish people scattered throughout Samaria and Galilee, especially Galilee, like Jesus was raised in Nazareth, in that northern part, Galilee, they thought there's no way from an obscure small town in a part of the country that we hate that anybody good would come from there. It's impossible. That's the disdain they have, hatred they have for Jesus, and even they lob it against Nicodemus. Are you actually from there? Further, see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, if no prophet is to arise out of Galilee, then what did Isaiah mean? Now, they have succumbed to the same dilemma or problem of making one scripture contradict another scripture that the multitude did in verse 42, 41 and 42, the third group, that there's no way they're going to come, there's a prophet or Christ is going to come from Galilee, there's no way. Now, they've done it, and they've even tried to circumvent God by assigning Nicodemus to the task of preventing any prophet from coming out of Galilee. How foolish is that? Instead of asking, well, what does God say about this? What's supposed to happen out of Galilee? They are trying to circumvent God or stop God by sending Nicodemus up there and saying, don't let anybody come out of there. You make sure you put down any rebellion against us. It's not supposed to happen. We've seen examples of unbelief. All of these are examples of unbelief. Not a single one is an example of true conversion, at least not in this passage. Eventually, yes, for Nicodemus, but not here. John has been doing this throughout. He has offered true belief in 37 and 39. He will show an example of true belief in chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. But interspersed, we have unbelief. Many more examples of unbelief than true belief. What will it be in our case? Will we truly believe? Will we believe that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead? Or will we complain, murmur, gripe, find fault? Will we make excuses for disobeying and disbelieving the holy and righteous word of God. Let's believe in Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.